Matt Dawson, and welcome to Birth of Science Bites. Today, I'm joined by Tony Casina. Thank you for joining us, Tony. Can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Matt. Hi, everyone. For those of you who do not know me, I've been involved with transfusion medicine as a blood banker and immunohematologist for a little over 40 years. There have been many advances and innovations in the immunohematology world that have occurred over those years. Many of those will be discussed during these podcasts. To open this podcast episode, let's start with the following question. Tony, what role does extended antigen typing or phenotyping play in transfusion medicine? Well, Matt, let's start with defining what blood group antigen phenotyping is. Most who have worked in blood banking have done some form of phenotyping. Presently, tests for a basic ABO blood group and RHD type is a simple yet most important form of phenotyping. Phenotype is the physical expression of a characteristic that is defined by genes. The concept of extended antigen typing or extended antigen phenotyping has application across a variety of situations and rationales. Beyond transfusion, pregnancy, relationship, paternity, and disease state are the common ones where phenotyping is utilized. For those of us in transfusion medicine, we think mainly about the application in transfusion and pregnancy. So, Tony, can you tell us a bit about how phenotyping for red cell antigens has evolved in the history of transfusion medicine? Yes, Matt, that is a very good question. I would start with a little bit of history on how phenotyping came to be and where it is today. It all revolves around the discovery of new blood groups when antibody development in humans through transfusion or pregnancy occurred. These antibodies were tested against populations or in family studies to show frequency and prevalence along with genetic inheritance. Of course, the use of the antibody then became a way to find compatible blood for transfusion. As a fun fact, they were named based on who developed the antibody or who discovered the antibody or based on the blood group system they ultimately belonged to in the end. Eventually, then came the concept of having a high-quality source to assure that the reagent really was a high-quality reagent capable of accurate antigen typing. Commercial sources became the norm with reagents manufactured from human, animal, and plant uh, lectin-based sources and regulatory agency approved. Then in the early 80s, with monoclonal-based technology, a new source for reagent production became available. Most of the early reagents were used on slides, but as tube-based tests became available, extended antigen typing transitioned to tube-based approaches. Further transitions into new technologies have occurred using microwell, microplates, and column-based tests. So you mentioned the prevalence of blood group antigens. Can you talk a little more about that? Well, as blood group antigens were discovered and further uh, defined population studies were done, these studies focused on defined ethnic groups and regions of the world, demonstrating that differences exist in frequency of specific genes and their antigens expressed. So Matt, there are many examples of blood group antigens that differ in the population. In the African-American population, the FYA negative B negative is a very common uh, phenotype, but rare in the Caucasian population. DIA positive or Diego A positive individuals are of high prevalence in South America, Central America, and Japan. 
The phenotype JKA negative B negative occurs in Polynesians at a higher frequency. And in Japan, finding a FYA negative individual in the Japanese population is considered rare as greater than 99% of Japanese are FYA positive. I could probably go on and on with this with even more examples, but these are all relate back to the ancestral lineage of the population. As an example of a commonly tested antigen, JKA prevalence breaks down as follows. Caucasian, 77%, African-Americans, 92%, and Asians, 72%. So that is um, the frequency that we see different blood group antigens or lack of blood group antigens in the population. For those who are passionate about this data and polymorphisms, there are two textbooks I recommend. One from Morant and colleagues, which was done many years ago, is the distribution of human blood groups and other polymorphisms. And more recent information, including differences at the molecular level between blood group antigens can be found in the Blood Group Antigen Facts book by Reed, Francis Lomas, and Olson. So that's really fascinating. But as we talk about extended antigen typing, how do you practically use that in hospitals and donor centers? Well, Matt, red cell phenotyping in patients is mainly associated with antibody identification. Let me explain this a bit further. When a patient develops a blood group antibody, the confirmation of the identity of that antibody is done by demonstrating that the patient lacks the antigen, therefore is capable of developing that antibody. Phenotyping of a patient can play an even bigger role in two ways. First, when a patient has what appears to be multiple antibodies that are difficult to sort through, identifying the phenotype of the patient can help further identify the possible antibodies that can be formed by the patient. This then allows us the ability to appropriately select cells, sort through the possibilities of antibodies that may be present, and finding that a phenotype match cells are compatible. Of course, if they are incompatible, then there may be more to the antibody identification story. Secondly, phenotyping becomes a valuable tool to help prevent the development of antibodies when you know which red cell antigens the patient lacks. So could you expand on what you mean by that? Absolutely. What I mean is this approach helps identify what antigens to avoid transfusing to the patient and is critical to apply to those patients who are frequently transfused. This plays a significant role in transfusion of sickle cell disease patients, thalassemics, and myelodysplastic syndrome patients, as well as other chronically transfused patients. Preventing the development of antibodies avoids challenges that come later with complex antibody problems and and helps uh, in in finding compatible blood for that patient. So in talking about compatible blood for the patient, that takes us then to the donor side, which is phenotyping donors, correct? Exactly. Searching through donors for antigen-negative blood can be quite laborious. In hospitals, finding donor units in their blood bank refrigerator requires phenotyping with the antiserum to locate antigen-negative donors for their patient. Knowing the prevalence of the antigen allows us to know how many units need to be tested. As an example, a patient with anti-JKA needs to be transfused with two units. The search of their blood inventory would, will require that about 10 units of blood be tested 
with the reagent anti-JKA to find the two units. That is because we know that about 75% of the population is JKA positive. In blood centers, testing of donors, particularly new donors that become repeat donors, is necessary to keep a ready supply of antigen-negative units at, uh, available for patients in the hospital. Donor centers pursue multiple antigen negatives to be ready to supply hospitals by testing with a variety of antisera. In some cases, some centers use DNA-based genotyping to identify multiple antigen negative units followed by serological phenotyping. Once a donor is antigen type based on typing of two different donations, that historical record can be used to label the units in the future. So you mentioned that antigen typing can be laborious. So why is that the case compared to other testing? Well, Matt, just consider if you need to find antigen-negative blood for a patient by testing a bunch of donors. Then consider the need to do this manually, recording donor numbers, labeling tests, selecting the right antisera, dispensing the antisera, selecting red cell controls, preparing red cell suspensions, dispensing those red cell suspensions, incubating if necessary for the test, the test processing through centrifugation, washing, etc., and finally reading and recording results. Lots of steps. So let's take the same concept to a phenotyping a patient for multiple antigens and applying all of the same manipulations just discussed, but now you are testing with various antisera. The key here is that whenever testing is done manually, there are lots of opportunities for errors. There is lots of record keeping required for extended antigen typing. So is there anything that we can do to make the process of phenotyping red cell antigens less arduous and more consistent? Well, absolutely. Through automating the test, we can eliminate many of the manual interactions that are prone to errors in performing the test. And at the same time, minimize the record-keeping activities that take place. So with full traceability of process steps delivered by automation, along with reaction grading, interpretation, and image capture, full process control is attained. Keep in mind that the instrument captures all the data and that can be transferred through the interfacing to the laboratory information system. The bottom line here is that the benefits that automation delivers on routine testing can be achieved for extended antigen typing, improving the outcomes, and bringing confidence to the transfusion for that patient. Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Um, as you can see during pre-transfusion testing, labs routinely encounter patient samples that require extended antigen typing for blood group system antigens beyond the most commonly tested A, B, and D. These patients have developed atypical antibodies like uh, Kel or Lewis, uh, which require additional testing to find compatible blood. Tony, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us and share your expertise. I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast edition about the importance of extended antigen typing in transfusion medicine. Make sure to review the section within the podcast description for reading material suggested in the reference list. So again, based on our podcast today, I leave you with the orthopop quiz. What is the prevalence of FYA in the Japanese population? Can't remember, you can always go check back. Thanks again for listening today. Please subscribe to OrthoScience Bites, our monthly podcast, where we will be discussing more complex questions we face every day in our labs. Brought to you by Ortho Clinical Diagnostics, pioneering advances in diagnostics for 75 years. 
because every test is a life. Take care and stay safe.